for May 20th, 2019. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 568, the rich tapestry of whatever. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like a, we're like a kingdom that stood for thousands of years and, and repelled uh, invasions and crumbles, crumbles in the space of three episodes and reforms itself. No, we're, uh, we're like your smart, funny friends from the internet, and this week we're talking about Game of Thrones. All spoilers, all books. All spoilers, all TV, <laughs> <laughs> all TV episodes. I'm Matt, and that's Pete. Hey, Pete, you know what the most powerful thing is in the world? John Wick? No. (laughs) (laughs) Like Jon Snow, he really loves his dog. That's true. That's true. Like Uh, John Wick, we all need to make a choice between a black suit with a white shirt or a black suit with a black shirt. (laughs) And John makes his choice in this episode. Really? No, no, Pete, the, the, the strongest thing in the world is a storied two-hander <laughs> i love it I love and that's uh that's what we have tonight you you and me baby let's let's put this thing to bed uh so spoilers spoilers for game of thrones uh you've 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 been warned um Two good moments in this episode. One is the end of the Iron Throne. I thought that was that was oddly poetic uh right. the other is the Stark children saying goodbye to each other. Not petting the dog. That doesn't rank up. Because that was our number one in our household, was when he finally went back and pet the dog. Oh. And he's like, you know what I should have done from the beginning is pet the dog. Pet and that would have worked out great. Hashtag yeah. pet the dog, John. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the Star Kids have all achieved their uh, – they're all through grad school now, and they're going out into the world to get their fellowships, right? Yeah, is that what's absolutely. going on? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah it's – I mean, I guess I – you know, we could go character by character. We could go um, – I'm not sure. I it, look the the this season has been really um this season has been heavily criticized by people I think with with cause uh because a lot of trends that have a lot of kind of troubling things since the series departed from the books uh in terms of having the kind of rich um the rich tapestry of uh of whatever the the uh the the rich tapestry of you know uh backstory and consistency and a system of prophecy that either works or doesn't work and and all that stuff uh the you know the stuff that got people into the 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 sort of depth of world building that got people into the the books from the beginning the depth of world building that has produced not one but two you know at least tomes of like history back history uh the the what is it called the world of thrones and then and then the world of ice and fire uh, and then fire and blood plus the night of the seven kingdoms novellas which are totally sweet as well Oh yeah, yeah, sure. The so that like the there's all this. The, it, it produces supplementary. It produces secondary literature. You yeah. know um, the. Uh yeah, and that that like that was attractive to people reading it because it sort of felt like. I don't know. It felt like there was some depth there. You know, it felt like there was some reason that things happen um, that, you know, had some weight, had the, the sort of the weight of history. And since the show departed the books, a lot of that has been evacuated in favor of I'm not totally sure what I don't know, Pete, you must you must have a perspective yeah. on that. I mean, personally, what I think has happened is that the show became a melodrama because the showrunners are particularly interested in character moments that are that they consider to be kind of generating of, of intense emotions. Right. So it became it went from being about tension and release and suspense and mystery to being about surprise in a very straightforward and kind of short-term way, right? The the biggest change, I think, uh, in a simplest way that has the biggest ramifications for Game of Thrones between the source material and really the first, what, four seasons, so, you know, give or take, on for the rest of it, is the amount of time that lapses between setup and payoff gets shorter and shorter and shorter. Yeah. Until finally in the last episode, we have, you know, a... a uh, 
a, a ring of the Nibelungen quality love death that is suggested and take suggested and then takes place no less than five minutes later. Right. Right. Like and and it, whereas in the first seasons, you know, it takes well, years or, or or whole episodes to even get around to suggesting that something is going to be solved. Right. Um, uh, here it's like set up payoff, set up payoff. And people like watching it because it does generate those intense feelings. Uh, but it's a different kind of show and it's more superficial. And I think the more attached you got to the way that it was, like me, who got extremely attached and got like really obsessed with these books uh, to what it became, right? There's a lot of frustration and disappointment. Uh, certainly if you were a fan of the nuance with which George R. R. Martin tends to treat difficult subjects, you've also been deeply disappointed by the later seasons of Game of Thrones, which have been very superficial. And I would almost venture to say subconscious in how they deal with like sort of sublimated. Right. In the sense that you, you get the sense that the way that it tackles difficult subjects is merely the surface level way in which certain people look at those subjects without really questioning it very hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So and that's been one of the other issues with it. Um, but I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that the show is totally without value. Certainly, it's the most popular show in the world. People like it for a particular reason. I mean, I don't know. I felt like this season. I like the last episode, even though the, it's like the amount of nonsense that happens is just uh, mind blowing at this point. Uh, but I liked the la I liked this episode and I felt like this season was a lot closer to landing the plane for the book fans in particular than a lot of people knew, especially knowing how it ends now. Uh, because if this was the direction it was it was going in, then I could be like, oh, like a lot of this makes sense, but only if you totally reconsider the way in which we got here, right? Like uh, you totally kind of like imagine that there was more foreshadowing or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's really like uh, – I mean I don't know. Do you want me – can I just dive into it? Yeah, go for, go for it. Brand, brand the okay. Broken, analog to Brand the Builder, right? Right, right. Well, yeah, and so, so here we go. We're gonna nerd out a little and, bit. Uh, yeah, we got We got to get into the lore a little bit. There's yeah, no way. There's no way out of the lore. There's a lot of people who are going to talk about the Game of Thrones show, and they're going to talk about how this ending was was either unsatisfying or could be justified. But we're going to go into the lore for a little bit. Yeah, so, by the way, we're we're recording this about. 10 minutes after the credits rolled on right. the thing. So uh, I'll be checking Reddit. Uh, and <laughs> no, I won't. I, I, won't. Uh, I don't know. Maybe there, there may be, there may be something good, but, but Pete, tell us, tell us about uh, Westeros. Tell us about, so, you know, what happened. So, and this, a lot of this is based off of reading other fiction from George R. R. Martin, where he introduces concepts that get played out in the, in the uh, Game of Thrones universe. Right. So, and there's two big stories that come to mind in talking about, about it. Uh, one is a short story called This Tower of Ashes, and then another one is another short story called And Seven Times Never Kill Man. And these two short stories introduce two of the concepts that um, I think are really important to understanding what just happened, if you really want to. And again, a lot of this is like, they put this out there. I don't necessarily think the showrunners have it in their head, but if they got these beats from George R. R. Martin, this is, I think, the big story that gets told, right? Uh. Uh, and so all the way and you and John, you have legit cred as before I go deep in lore. Do you want to talk about your legit cred oh, for I, Game of Thrones books? I guess so. Yeah. Like I so I um I have a magazine problem, Pete. I have, okay. a, you know, I uh, subscribe to a lot of magazines with the intention of reading them. And I, I don't like subscribe to, you know, uh, GQ and details. Is details even still a thing? Like uh, <laughs> the, modern, the modern age has no time for details. It's just called broad strokes now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, the details I'm interested in take, you know, reams and reams of paper with very small, very small print and, and are put out by small presses. No, I have a magazine problem. And, and so there are, there are stacks and stacks of, you know, New Yorkers, of Atlantics, of the London Review of Books, the New York Review of Books, the Times Literary Supplement, The Economist, like in, in waves, I subscribe to these, collect them, don't read them, recycle them because that is somehow more virtuous than, than not subscribing in the first place. I don't know. And, uh, and this has been a thing. And when, when I was a teenager, um, I wanted to read more, uh, I wanted to read more, uh, fiction. I so I, I subscribed to two sort of pulp magazines, like Reader's Digest sized, uh, newsprint, um, magazines. And one was called, I think, Analog Science Fiction and Fact. And the other was called Asimov's, uh, Science Fiction and Fantasy. Um, 
and in Asimov's the uh, the fir- the Daenerys chapters of A Game of Thrones, the first book in the Song of Ice and Fire series, uh, were excerpted before the book came out. So all the all the Khal Drogo stuff, the Viserys getting burned with the the crown, uh, Viserys Khal Rogart, the Cart King, uh, getting burned with uh, you know the molten gold, all the way through the dragons being born. Those those were excerpted and kind of strung together as a novella. Uh, I wasn't aware of this, but Pete informed me that it won an award. Um, I'm sure a lot of these books have, have won all kinds of awards. And so like before the first book came out, I had read all the Daenerys chapters, and I, you know, snapped the the hardcover of A Game of Thrones up right when it got. Um Right when it got printed. Now, uh, that volume is worth thousands of dollars today because you can't get it, you can't get it anymore. It was the uh, it was the first printing with the gold cover uh, embossed with a uh, like a picture of the Iron Throne that was also kind of embossed uh, on it. And I gave it to a girl. I I uh, like lent- well, love is the death of duty, man. <laughs> I I uh, lent lent this to someone I was seeing at the time, um, or you know we I don't know we were in high school I was sixteen or seventeen probably you know someone I flirted with for for a half a minute and uh, there goes my there goes my. Um, uh, there goes my transmission first. for hybrid Camry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> By the way, if you're listening, pining after Matt after he flirted with you however many years ago, you now know you have something of value, and you should sell, sell, sell. Uh, I, I, I know who I know who it was, and, and uh. they're not listening to this podcast. <laughs> All right. Um, so the the I actually owned a first edition of Game of Thrones uh, and had it in my possession very briefly. Um, and uh, so that was my, you know, so I, you know, I, I was, I was doing Game of Thrones before, before it was cool. I mean, Pete, how did the books come into your life? Like, at what point did, did the novels enter your consciousness? Oh, be, what happened was that I was watching the first season of the show, and I was googling it and started finding spoilers, and I was like, oh no, <laughs> I need to read these books before I spoil them for myself by looking on the internet. Oh, I so I started reading voraciously after maybe four episodes of the first season. Have you? Okay, so. I I've been through, I read uh, one through four, and then I read one through four again when five came out, and I read uh, five. So I've only read five once. Um, Have you, where are you, uh, where are you at with your, like, uh, number of times through through the novels? Oh, man. Well, I mean, the main novels, I really only read the once. I read all five in a row. Yeah. But I've also read uh, the the Rogue Prince, The Princess and the Queen, the Night, all the Night of the Seven Kingdoms books. Back when you when you had not back when it was only a year or two ago, you used in order to get all the ancillary novellas and material that was associated with Game of Thrones, you had to go back into all these old sci-fi anthologies that were published through the nineties and early two thousands. Yeah. And actually, my wife, then fiance, bought a bunch for me for my birthday one Aww, year, which was awesome. A- yeah. She went and found them, and I was like, oh, my God, you found them. This is great. And it's not like they were incredibly hard to find, but it was, like, not easy, right? Uh, they weren't in print, right, uh, for a little while. But they got, they're back into print now. Everything's back into print now. But, like, you know, I bought the Fire and Blood book as soon as it came out. I theorize about Game of Thrones stuff on the Internet all the time. Uh, I, I, I care way too much about this whole story, uh, basically. I'm, a, I'm an avid viewer of the uh, Preston Jacobs YouTube channel, if people know that, and also an avid listener of the Lucifer Means, Means Lightbringer. Uh, mythical astronomy of ice and fire podcast as well so those are my my big kind of like uh ancillary sources for my own kind of fanness of game of thrones oh uh, right. yeah right that's i mean yeah it and it is like i you know get more all all credit to george rr right who like yeah. uh who can sort of create a thing like like this that you know goes so deep that um that people can get this into it, right? Like that's, that's not a, a, uh, it's not a skill that everyone has. Certainly it's not a skill that every writer has. It's not a skill that every great writer has. Uh, and it's not, I mean the, the, whatever the literary merits of, of George RR Martin, um, he does, he does what he says he does. He does what he sets out to do. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And this is something you've talked about, Pete, is that the, the, um, 
his stated aim in sort of writing uh, medieval sort of uh, fantasy novels is to sort of give you the sensory experience, you know, right. not a lot of like high minded lords and ladies stuff, but like, what does it feel like to step in the mud? You know, what does it feel like when the, when the, uh, uh, the, you know, f- the five page description of the meal, what does every dish feel like as it slides down your throat? Right. When, right. 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 All, the, all all this the agony um, and the ecstasy, all the conflict, it all gets heightened by conflict, tension and mystery. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. All that all that taste, because he's like because I think in that famous speech that he gives, it's uh, it's all life is ashes in the end. Right. Life is boring and dull real life. And so fantasy literature is about making real life more interesting by giving you this sensory experience, uh, which is deeply problematic. But of course, as we know, problematic means introducing problems. And it turns out that when it comes to literature, being problematic can make it better. Uh, conflict is necessary to to storytelling um and all sorts of other stuff but it is it is definitely not this is not a uh this is a 90s story in the sense that it is uh seeking out ways to kind of interrogate and problematize the things that came before it without necessarily offering solutions uh it's it's very spawn in that regard (laughs) but you want me to that's that's an interesting point pete and that like the turn the turn towards melodrama you know is a turn towards the kind of of um current current you know vogue for polarization right for like problematic meaning irredeemably bad uh or having the connotation of irredeemably bad rather than meaning like huh so like a head scratcher you know yeah. a puzzler something you gotta sink your teeth into uh a, a little bit right and like the only thing I guess that really retained any of that was maybe Jamie's story arc uh, in the end. You know, Jamie remained problematic. Uh, yeah, to- the, the, the modern interpretation really can't handle it, right? Like, they can't. The urge to make the characters resolve means that it's... But yeah, I guess at the end, when he goes back to see Cersei, it's not consistent. It's not internally consistent, but it is definitely still problematic. Yeah, is, uh, I yeah. mean, is is Jon Snow woke? No, Jon Snow knows nothing, and he still knows nothing. <laughs> no, it's true. If there's one thing that this story really stuck by, it's that Jon Snow doesn't know anything about anything. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, yeah, I, I – yeah. Well, uh, dive, dive in, Pete, because I, right. I could stick in the in the preamble forever. So, so let's go. Sure. So here's the story of Westeros, right? Uh, first, the Earth, cool. No, so so the planet, as we know, is a big planet that has a whole bunch of different land masses on it, but we only really know about two of them that matter in the story, Westeros and Essos. And Westeros and Essos used to be connected by a land bridge, but the land bridge at some point in the past was blown up or swamped or destroyed in some way. And we know that in Essos, which is where Daenerys spends most of the story, there's these ancient empires, vast wastelands, huge, these wide savannas that are covered in horses. Uh, And in Westeros, there are lots of forests. And in Westeros, there are these things called old gods, which are these trees, right, that are in symbiosis, uh, or rather there are these spirits that are in symbiosis with these trees that are in symbiosis with these sort of elf creatures called the children of the forest and then there's a population of humans which at some point fought a war against them but you know made peace with them and then came to adopt worshiping the the old gods as gods and so westeros was in this sort of homeostasis for a long time where there were trees and people and elves and giants and mammoths and all sorts of like prehistorical stuff living in this sort of state of suspended advancement where nothing was really happening for a really long time led by these people called green seers right and the most famous one that we hear about is uh, garth the green who made the land bloom and they and, or also the gray king of the iron islands who and they all sit on thrones that are trees right so we're sort of led to believe if you lead the old lore that these green seers in this land of homeostasis uh they are all they're all like bran right they're all like the three-eyed raven they're all connected to the wirewood net then and they rule people they rule over people with unnaturally long lifespans with uh, with unnaturally uh vast knowledge because they've made this sort of deal where they get sort of extended life and knowledge and in exchange for that they give up a bunch of their humanity and they merge with this sort of eco system. Uh, there's a speech one of the children of the forest gives in the book about how uh, 
the the old gods are wise and they make sure that the children of the forest numbers don't multiply too much because otherwise they would swamp the whole earth right and so they want to make sure like deer in the forest the deer overpopulate they starve right so, and this is a big theme through a lot of george r, r. martin's writing is like overpopulation and the problem of freedom with regards to reproduction and had, there's a lot of sci-fi stories about planets that are overpopulating and some sort of god figure who has to come in and depopulate it in a darkly unethical act which seems necessary for their survival of a planet right so Westeros is working like this. Uh, would but, you yeah. say, would, Pete? Would you say that uh, it is inevitable? <laughs> what is what inevitable? The the the, the uh, you know depopulation of of let's say half of the population of a given <laughs> planet or a, a number of planets in let's say just a snap of the fingers uh, Look, is it inevitable? All I'm saying is that when Jon Snow went to pet his dog. That did put a smile on my face, <laughs> right? Like, is uh, well, how many Thanos quotes can we throw in here, right? Like, here's the thing: Bran is Thanos. You're going to probably read this in a whole bunch of different kinds of stories, right? Kinds of hot takes on the internet. If you haven't already read five hot takes on the internet that point out that Bran is Thanos, they are not doing their homework. Bran is Thanos. Uh, but let's pause for a second, right? Because in Essos, you have these human empires, right, which arise also among various sorts of advanced magic, and you have like dragons and like magical technology and like magical steel and giant pyramids and giant slave armies and and like the horses which you know hey if you have a lot of herd animals traversing a savanna you know what it's really good at uh, preventing the growth of trees right so like personally one of my theories is that there's this long-standing biological warfare that's been going on where in essos they managed to stop the growth of the trees and in westeros they didn't and so westeros is this mysterious continent where all the people have been kind of subjugated under a strange alien god right with these trees things right and essos is the land of the great human empire right his name his uh, name is the lorax and he speaks yeah. for the trees <laughs> exactly and he demands human sacrifice right and that's the other thing that they only go into i think very little bit in in the show is that the old gods drink human blood uh and uh and that's kind of where their powers come from maybe to an extent but there's definitely like people get executed at the heart tree the blood goes into the roots the trees drink the human blood uh there's an idea that maybe that's how the trees get through the winter is that they keep a population of humans and then the humans uh oh you committed a crime oh you killed my brother this is a vendetta you got to get executed by the heart tree and this sort of steady flow of human blood is necessary both to limit the human population and kind of sustain the trees and this is why instead of having one big monolithic empire the westeros is split up into tons and tons of little kingdoms all who have like animal symbol sigils or sigils related to like sacrifice or trees or fish uh there's like all this sort of like this is ecosystem of the different houses that all constantly feud against each other constantly generate wars constantly forestall progress constantly bleed into the ground feed the trees and there's the, the only place where anybody actually knows what's going on is the citadel where the people there voluntarily wear chains to indicate that they've decided to subjugate human knowledge under the old gods this is my thinking anyway about game of thrones right is that like westeros is a is a complicated social agreement between humans and the children of the forest and the trees aimed and at, the aimed at, uh, aimed at uh, perpetuating uh, decent horticultural practices yes you know and, and sustaining the human species at the expense of human liberty and human life okay right um and and that that this is the war of life against death is the idea of like can we sustain the ecosystem i'm getting a little bit deep in the weeds here but like of course i am because we're deep in the weeds that's what's going on and in essos is the place of like the slavers who but of course the trees are also slavers because people have no free will right like the uh the the, the people like bran have so much knowledge and, and and maybe even arguably psychic powers, though they don't really get into that much. The warging kind of goes away and the ability to put your brain into some other creature, like the way that Bran can kind of take control of Hodor's brain forcefully early in the show is kind of dispensed with later in the show. But the Green Seers do seem to have the power to, like, enter things and take them over if necessary. Um and then in Essos, you have these kind of like biological weapons, whether they're giant herds of horses or big dragons uh, that come in and burn down all the trees or or the Andals with their axes who cut down all the trees. And the humans are able to establish independence. But in doing so, they subject themselves to a new kind of slavery by organizing themselves hierarchically. And the ones who have the power dominate the ones who don't. And so you basically end up with two models of pretty much the same thing. One of them is arguably more sustainable than the other, but it comes at a terrible cost uh, as well. Right. Nothing. There's no free lunch 
in this whole world. And at some point, the people from the East try to migrate into the West, and this disrupts the whole ecosystem. There's also this idea of, like, the children of the forest don't like the people, and there's a, they want to kill them, so they create the others, right, and the White Walkers. And the White Walkers' job is to purge the human population. Right. And that's their job. And if, if in, for some reason the humans get too united or too prosperous uh, or they get too big for their britches and they and they start doing things that are against the rules, the, the others, the White Walkers come down, they kill everybody and you push the reset button. Uh, and that's the wheel. Right. That's the irony of this episode is that the wheel is like in my parlance at all, you know, reading into all this is the wheel of homeostasis, wherein the green seers, the children of the forest, the old gods continue to kind of push the reset button on fake medieval Europe in Westeros so that people don't realize that they are in this sort of endless cycle for their own protection. Right. From people like Daenerys, who would kill all of them, as opposed to people like Bran, who only who will only uh, so take away all it kills some of them. But Daenerys also only killed some of them, right? So it's all a lot of clever PR. Uh, but the story of Game of Thrones, writ, writ large, right, is the story of uh, the the old gods reestablishing primacy over Westeros by playing against each other the others who have gone rogue, the White Walkers who have gone rogue and want to destroy all life, and the Dragon Lords who have been exiled and want to come back with a vengeance and are pissed off, right? And want to and want to take back Westeros. Oh, and that's, the- so, that's so interesting. That that it's something that's kind of a collateral damage or, or uh, glossed over in the series, which is when Cersei blows up the Sept of Baelor, which is like such a huge mass murder that like and is you know is just sort of glanced at. Uh, right. by by the series but that actually takes on in your reading here that takes on a lot more importance because it's it's about kind of uh the, uh, what the, the the burning down the monotheistic? I know there are seven aspects of of God, but it's one God with seven aspects, like uh, right. um, the monotheistic religion and returning to the kind of uh, animistic religion of the the children of the forest and the old gods. Right. So like the theory here is that the dreams and the visions that people get are being sent to them by people like Bran and they become convinced that there are prophecies that are guiding their lives and they start making choices that line up with and fulfill the prophecies or try to resist them and then end up uh, serving them in sort of predictable ways. So the idea that like the Mad King was gradually driven mad, maybe he was literally hearing voices in his head from Blood Raven right up up beyond the wall or somebody else. Uh, maybe he was. We don't know because the show doesn't really go into it, and the books. And George R. R. Martin loves to leave these things kind of ambiguous. But I don't think you have to read too deeply into it uh, in terms of the lore to recognize that, like people who are special powers, tend to really be susceptible to mental manipulation in this story. Whether it's like, I mean, John has been brought back from the dead. Let's not forget to mention, right? Like, like Relore. This mysterious god that everybody seems to think is real, but which even Melisandre admits she doesn't really know what he's asking for, has brought Jon Snow back for mysterious purposes. And at a certain point, we just sort of stop asking why. And like, why is he still moving around? Who is sustaining him? Like, what? Why is he still animate? Right. And the the answer is because there's a lot of people around here who seem to be acting in ways that to them make sense. But in the grand scheme of things, serve mostly to Thanos the place, right? To, like, cut the human population, as you mentioned, destroy the monotheistic religion, destroy the institutions of power, kill the dragons. One of the big lore stories is the whole dance of the dragons, which is a very elaborate political backstory from, you know, hundreds of years before Daenerys's uh, or like, I guess, what, 100, maybe 200 years before Daenerys uh, of like all the dragon lords get in a big fight with each other and all the dragons die. And it's like, well, that's convenient, right? Like that, that as a result, all the dragons are dead. That that really seems to serve the interest of people who don't like dragons um, who might very well be people who favor, you know, non, you know, not having indiscriminate killing of large numbers of people on fields of grass. But at the same time, everybody has a game. Uh, and I guess that's the um that's the sort of bottom line, right, is that a lot of people expected in the Game of Thrones show for there to be an end of the kind of recursive games, the games within games, right, which we first learn when uh, when when Ned Stark is investigating, right, the murder of John Aaron 
and uh, and he's trying to go after Cersei, and then Cersei kind of usurps him, and then we find out that Littlefinger was playing both sides, and we eventually realize that Littlefinger set up the fight between the Starks and the Lannisters in order to get them to kill each other and weaken each other so that he could improve his own position, right? And so that's the sort of that's the sort of uh, that's the tonic chord of Game of Thrones. Right. It's like uh, that that somebody is setting up a fight between two other people, two other groups of people to weaken both of them to strengthen their own position. It's interesting. And so, yeah. your, your metaphor is interesting a little bit because the 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 tonic chord is actually the kind of the end of the game. It's the origin and the end of the game, as Derrida says in, in Structure, Sign and Play. Right. Like the uh, it actually is the origin and the end of the game because, you know, traditionally pieces of music of tonal music will start at the tonic and return to the tonic. But the, the tonic chord is a consonant harmony where you don't feel a need to move from it mm, you know right, what i mean and right. all the other it's uh and it's actually like the, the reason dominant harmony is called dominant harmony is because it sort of dominates the tonic like you have to do you have to go back to the tom the the tonic after you hear the the dominant harmony and then everything everything else is at least in in a very reductive uh reading of of uh, you know tonal music theory that i think you know jordan stokes would probably uh roll his eyes at but the the, the <laughs> theory is that like everything gets you to uh everything gets you to the dominant which takes you back to the tonic at which point you stop at which point the the piece is over um and you know the the uh sometimes you like da 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 ba ba and it's a very short statement of the tonic sometimes there's a very long elaboration of the tonic it's like we're done we're here right we're done right we're here we're really done we're really here yeah hey remember when i told you that we're done i meant it <laughs> no i really <laughs> meant it so i guess then in that sense the tonic in game of thrones is westeros is kind of thinly populated medieval level early medieval level technology with weird aberrations and inconsistencies right but like the people use coats of arms you know the people there's no real large-scale political organization it's split up kingdoms you know the continent isn't unified that's sort of the tonic the big tonic. And then the dominant for that is somebody comes in with some sort of massive military advantage to kind of sweep through the continent, whether it's the first men coming with their bronze weapons or better, if you think that maybe the first men, the truth isn't entirely known about them, right? The Andals coming with their iron weapons, the Valyrians coming with their dragons. That's the sort of like, I'm going to come in here and, and clean the place up. And then the sort of harmony is how that group gets turned against itself. And, and how other players get brought in and turned against it. And that sort of fist, that hammer that was going to come down on the old gods eventually gets kind of played out and dissipated. And then we get back to it. And in the story, the dominant is the idea that, like, somebody is on the throne who uh, seems to have kind of unquestioned power, but strangely seems totally ineffective in using it. And then, like, the dominant would be somebody makes a play for power by pitting two factions against each other that kill each other. Right. And it's sort of like and then that sort of resolves back and comes back. Right. And it's like Tywin Lannister seems to be the big king now. Like, oh, it turns out that Tywin Lannister's own son has been turned against him and Tywin Lannister and his own son are fighting each other. Like, how did that happen? Uh, well, Varys was involved. Well, Varys and Littlefinger are fighting each other. How did that happen? Right. And in the books, this sort of spirals out even more to like the different cities are involved across the ocean. But this this cycle of groups of people who each think they're the smart ones who are being played by another group of people who think they're the smart ones, who are getting played by another group of people who think they're the smart ones, until we get to the end where Bran is, like, sitting there looking at Jon Snow, saying, like, you were where exactly where you were supposed to be. Which, in case, to put it really simple, Bran knew that Jon was going to kill Daenerys the whole time, is, is what he's saying here, right? Like, that's, that Bran, Bran's plan was to arrange things in such a way that John killed Daenerys for him because otherwise a dragon or three dragons would pose too large of a threat to the trees, potentially, right? Or to, like, the domination of the old gods over Westeros. So Bran is the Lorax, and he speaks for yeah. the trees. For the trees he, Bran no... is the Lorax, and he's not taking nothing from nobody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's, like, he's like a Greenpeace Lorax. He, he takes up arms against the, you know, like, uh, really, really strong resistance tactics. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, again, this is an interesting thing, kind of recontextualization that you're you're doing here. Um, the period of history that we care about, the period of history that is sort of maybe capped off by the Song of Ice and Fire series of books, is really an aberration in the thousands of years long history of of Westeros, which is like having the Seven Kingdoms united under a single ruler and having a sort of you know 
full on feudal system set up where the the uh lords are all the the sort of feudal lords are all subservient to uh to a hereditary monarch right especially because this monarch is like uh not a dragon lord right he's got the stag horns on him he has his tree his uh, crown is of antlers which look like tree branches so i think robert is sort of a the whole thing is kind of motifs and reflections and kind of repetition and symbol and that's kind of how that's how he builds out so many ideas in the story without constantly just making it seem like it's invented or say like strings of nonsense consonants that have been linked together by an oxford professor of philology right like (laughs) is that is that king robert you know the sort of fat drunken guy on the throne with the antlers on his head is the sort of spring king he's like the green seer he's like the symbol of the trees right his regime is kind of a reflection of kind of the old regime uh and and but it also needs to collapse uh right and it's like also humans kind of need to get out of the middle um and the long summer needs to end and winter needs to come and the reason winter comes is because there's a cycle of seasons and in winter things get cold and in summer things grow right and so it's like grow and get cold grow and get cold um but we should probably talk about this season right yeah, like a little bit a, a little bit about this uh about this season and and this show and like the, yeah. the sort of the notable thing um the notable thing about this season is as you've said the kind of shortening uh to to an infinitesimal span of time the distance between setup and punch whereas before like uh the things would happen and not pay off for a couple of years in you know viewership time right now now things happen and as you say like Tyrion. um you know, I don't know. Tyrion's Tyrion's attempt to convince John that Daenerys is bad started with ratting out Varys and sort right. of making John watch that. And the you know, he, it just just in case the point wasn't made, it was italicized, underlined, and highlighted um, by you know having a long lingering shot on him as he gives a huh? right kind of look to to Daenerys once she Dracarys is Varys. Uh, Daenerys Dracarys is Varys. <laughs> say that oh my yeah, <laughs> yeah <exactly>. um, in paris <laughs> uh say that five times past so the the right so that like the most generous um read that you could give of this is that it's been you know half an episode <laughs> right <laughs> um yeah. of of tension and suspense suspense building and you know the same thing like the uh Danny came in for a lot of criticism um or in after episode 6 or after episode 5 i don't know after the the she sacks king's landing um for you know going go, for dracarising uh king's landing and and you know after they had surrendered by like by essentially shooting them in the back as they were running away and and um you know there there was a lot of uh there was a lot of talk and counter talk uh on this on the internet a lot of it centered around spurious readings of of Danny as a trauma survivor and like people kind of grinding their own acts about uh, about like uh uh, various things in in their own lives, but like uh, the final attempt to kind of retcon this was made by Tyrion in this episode, right? Where he he talks about you know, oh wait, all of those things that that were good, you know, like like uh, killing killing the slavers, like liberating the slaves, you yeah. know, um, yeah. th- those things were actually bad. You know, right. uh, We've, and- in the end, Tyrion is Andrew Johnson <laughs> and Andrew Johnson should have been impeached. But anyway, continue. He was impeached. I don't know. He was convicted. I'm not sure if they actually vote. Never mind. We'll, we'll get we can talk about that another time. But yes, he's 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 a he's a cotton, a, a copperhead. Right. Is what Tyrion is at this point in the story. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. Yeah. Go on. He's so it's uh, right. He's got a. um He's got to sort of speak for he's got to speak for the writers who have kind of written this fairly shocking development and like, yeah, okay, they prepared it this year with her kind of alienation up at Winterfell. They prepared it this year with her rejection from her nephew, Jon Snow or uh, Aegon Targaryen. Um, They. 
you know, they 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 certainly told you that they were preparing for it. Yeah. Whether they showed you that they were preparing for it is another matter. Yeah. But certainly there were a bunch of characters who said that this might happen at various points. But yeah, yeah, they they set it up a little bit, but it still doesn't have that George R. R. Martin sensory feel of like you feel Daenerys's anger and rage and you know why she would feel this conflict and want to do it. Right. And right? The, the, like the um with her in the black dress black dress is bad by the way like we yeah. we know that like cersei black dress bad you know sansa at the end queen in the north white dress good good queen oh, yeah. in the north white dress right uh no, with the wirewood leaves on it indicating that she's rejoining the old regime but anyway no continue yeah exactly <laughs> the the um so, uh, you know, the, the shot in this episode of her with Drogon behind her and the dragon wings flare, you know, flap and they look like she has wings, uh, you know, this sort of, um, super fascistic image. And by the way, like a good visual allegory for, for fascism, right? Like the, <laughs> the great leader at the top of the steps, right? Um, sort of available to the people, but also sort of set apart from the people. Uh, the, the kind of godlike power of the human and dragon human hybrid of Daenerys with the, the wings flapping behind him. Um, a, a, an enormous security theater, right? Like, uh, row, row upon row of unsullied lined up up the steps, rank and file unsullied, uh, drawn up before her. And then the rabble in the back, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, the rally, you know, you know the, the like unruly rabble, you know, uh, riding the horses around and and ululating um, and like uh, waving their curved swords, yeah. curved swords in the air, like a really good, you know, a really good uh, uh, primer of you know what what uh, how this uh, government is going to look, right? right. How how this era um, is is going to uh, yeah. and and to think it all could have been avoided if John had just boned Danny last week. <laughs> right? Why would that? How would that have helped? Well, when, when she says, am I nothing but your queen? You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he like... says, you know, and they kiss awkwardly and he kind of pulls back because he's like, auntie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if he said he had been like, auntie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, right then, then he just started going on like, Despacito, and he just starts like jiving to it. Yeah, everything would have been fixed. But the it would uh, be love rather than duty, right? right? Exactly. Which she duty, said. Yeah. She said. Uh, she said. Well, she was talking about love versus fear. She was doing a little yeah. Machiavelli there, right? right and she right. said, "Fine, let it be fear." And that was kind of the last straw. That was the straw that broke the dragon's back, right? You know? Right. And right, that. Yeah. Like just just if that you know uh, could have been a could have could have been a song of ice and loving. well i mean he so here's the thing right like the whole eighth season has been a a just a a, just a a giganto peter sellers pink panther pratfall down the stairs right like yeah it is like for the protagonists right they have been screwing up left and right and I mean, I loved the second episode where they all kind of all the people kind of confronted the possibility that they were all going to die. Uh, and it turned out a bunch of them were going to die, just not when they thought. And then I loved the ridiculousness of the Battle of Winterfell, even to the point where, you know, because because the, the, the show has also been just plagued by just rampant minor continuity errors. You know, like like when in the last episode, when John leaves Grey Worm to assassinate the Lannister soldiers and then walks to the Red Keep and Grey Worm is in front of him. And it's like, has time passed? What's going on? How did Grey Worm get there so fast? Did he know a shortcut? <laughs> like that, that seems strange, but like, there's been all sorts of stuff like it's that. It's also right? like Hugo Weaving isn't even Red Skull anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but, but the battle of Winterfell with all, it's like, Oh no, eight people are biting Brienne and now they're gone. And eight people are biting uh, Jamie and now they're gone. I kind of would have accepted that if the whole battle was just totally pear shaped, if the whole point was like, we're going to make a last stand against the dead and we're going to fight bravely and we're going to go down fighting. Oh, and by the way, our plan is terrible. We're completely stupid and we all die immediately. Right. right? Like that to me is interesting, right? It's like you were so vain to think that you, your vanity was to think that you would go down on your feet, right? When in fact you're going to go down like screaming, right? Like, uh, cause you are totally out of your element. And then the battle of Winterfell kind of by throwing in that, the twist, because they can't help but surprise you, of, of the way that Arya kills the Night King, spoils that. 
and, and is like, oh, this whole idea that this is about kind of the folly of man has been kind of undermined by the by the, you know, the acts of Tony Stark in defeating Thanos. So in this case, uh, I guess it's what, like Spider-Man more because she's got to be able to swing that long distance. Uh, but yeah, like, exactly. Like, she yeah. does. She traverses an enormous distance and, and her trajectory as she descends upon the Night King is sort of like, wait, she didn't run in on the ground, did she? She like uh, she did one of those things where she builds up enough speed that she can walk up an invisible staircase into the air and jump <laughs> off the tops. She Mario's it. She invisible, uh, you know, end of Super Mario Brothers. She heads up those uh, those that staircase and jumps onto the flag. I thought she wily coyote did where she just doesn't look down and then she doesn't fall. She just that, gets to keep running. <laughs> that is a great, it's a certain kind of logic, but it's cartoon logic. <laughs> but, but the point is that like, then the, the next battle comes, right? Well, then we have that thing in the middle where whatever, I don't care what happens. They're all arguing. Uh, nobody's, nobody's figuring anything out. It doesn't matter. And then you get to the next battle and it's like, wow, everything actually worked. Well, first of all, Cersei's plan was totally stupid and didn't work at all and was like totally destroyed. And then the good guys look like they're going to win, but, then they're they make a huge mistake right and they totally screw up and and this is like uh just just a series of awful awful mistakes everybody keeps messing up and you could be bothered by this right and being like well what kind of medieval military puts its trebuchets in the front lines in front of its pikemen right that 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 you literally have to have zero experience with anything playing any of the age of empires games to think that's right (laughs) But but like and that's that's sort of been been the criticism. Well, one of the many criticisms, one of the many justifiable criticisms is just how stupid everybody has been and how many bad decisions they've made. And I don't have a problem with everybody making stupid, bad decisions if the kind of point at the end of everything is that everybody has made a bunch of stupid, bad decisions. And then these are the consequences. And I guess and that's why I want to read in at least, that Bran yeah. installing himself as king is the result of all of this and that everybody's stupid decisions were like his idea the whole time. Yeah, right. Sure, um, I get it. Right, right, right. And that that, but at least they save themselves from the stupidest and worst decision of all, which is democracy, which uh, Samuel <laughs> Tarley proposes, and which gets laughed down in the council, uh, the council of of great houses. You know, it should have been like what people. <laughs> there are we're all that's left. There's that one dude without a shirt with the horrible birds. You want me to call him in here and make him? Fill out a punch out a hanging Chad. That make you feel better. Um, (laughs) There's a whole bunch of reasons. Well, I mean, if you were really serious about it, you could be like, okay, how do we administer a a democratic election? Yeah, we have no, we have no mass communication. So, actually, kind of like early in America, the the results would not be known, and the the electoral college would vote. You know, or the the election would be in what in November. The electoral college would vote thereafter. And we wouldn't know who it was for like two or three months until January 20th. And that's uh, like and then, by the way, like are are the the chests of ballots traveling to a central to the citadel under armored guard? Like this seems like a really bad security risk because like all you have to do is, you know, knock over that convoy. Right. And replace it with stuffed ballot boxes. Anyway, I'm getting too deep into this. But, yeah, I mean, there are there are logistical problems with uh, with, you know, guaranteeing the integrity. Of, uh, of an election without uh, uh, a lot of um, controls and oversight in yeah. place. Also, like 85% of the people on the continent who can read and write all belong to a hierarchical order and have no free will. Right? Like that's, that's kind of a problem in, in running an election, right? That all the administrators who conduct all the communications across the entire continent are all literally – they're all literally wearing chains in order to signify their lack of ability to make independent decisions. Uh, and they all report to like a shady cabal that exists like thousands of miles away. But this is – and of course, you know, Yara never speaks up and says, oh, we do this in the Iron Islands. It's called the King's Mood. That's how we got Euron. It doesn't really seem like a great idea. It turns out that all you have to do is if, if somebody brings a whole bunch of gold, there's too much money in politics, uh, and it all, it all gets way out of control. Then all of a sudden you've got, you know, this guy who doesn't even know how to wear an undershirt under a leather jerkin, and boy, his nipples must have been chafing like crazy in that outfit. Uh, but yeah, it was um, that. That was uh, the the whole idea of like pitching democracy. That felt a lot like the whole uh, we didn't bring elephants. That was like a nod to the 
fans, I think, being like, what about this thing the fans have talked about liking? Oh, yeah, the fan. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Sorry, fans. We're at least going to lampshade it. Right. <laughs> As you know, that's a, another Preston Jacobs reference. Go watch the Preston Jacobs and his shade of the lamp character who talks about all these like, well, now that we mentioned that Sansa can't feed the Dothraki, uh, we don't have to address it ever again. It's It's, it's been lampshaded. Uh, but anyway, yes, it's like uh, the whole thing. Daenerys got done dirty. I think. Can we say that? Can we? Can we say that? Oh um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In in yeah. season eight, for sure. Yeah, the whole her whole character was done dirty because this was a situation where they knew the tonic cord for the show. They knew the way that the show was going to end. That, but that then they had like a couple of bullet points, right? Of like the big things that were going to happen. They said they knew three O, and I don't want to put the chili peppers on, but sort of like O S word moments that they knew, right? That that uh, that the people in Game of Thrones knew, and one of them was the Hodor thing, and one of them was uh, Stannis burning his daughter, and then the third one. It either is Daenerys burning down King's Landing or John killing Daenerys, that whole sort of messed up situation, right? And they knew that they wanted to get there, and it sounds like they tried a happier ending, but it didn't test well. People didn't like it. They were unsatisfied with it because the way they were going, because they're doing a melodrama, they want a happy ending. Right? That would fit the form better. But instead, they end up with the ending to a complicated, morally ambiguous mystery story, which is not the story that they've been doing for the past four years. So it's... But also, like... In the meantime, the characters have accrued baggage and, and and meaning, right? Even when their decisions are all over the map and things are their attitudes change from a day to day basis and you know, there's no meaningful distance and how where do you keep all the coats that you're constantly changing into, right? There's like there's no there's a lot of inconsistency, but these characters do still come to mean something. And I think of all the characters in Game of Thrones, it was Daenerys who got done the dirtiest because she really was headed in a different direction, the way that she was being portrayed. And the fact that that they didn't even tell like the like you get the sense that Amelia Clark didn't know that this was coming like at all because they felt like there didn't could be any spoilers because her character seemed not to be headed in this direction like even a little bit. Uh, and it's one thing like, like to to say it's it's Tony Soprano maybe gets shot at the end of the Sopranos. Maybe he doesn't. Right. Walter White is pretty much dead at the end of Breaking Bad. You know, this isn't really a spoiler uh, per se. I'm not really telling you what happens. Um but you can't really say that those characters don't get to fully realize themselves. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. They get to have those moments where of apotheosis near the end of their story where they really kind of get to full throatedly be themselves and make the point that they were going to make. And I feel like Daenerys got cheated of that moment. What had Daenerys become in this show at that point? And, and like how if you're going to make her kind of do this thing where she burns the city down and of course then abruptly in the next episode it's like you know it's basically like she chopped off Darth Vader's hand and all of a sudden it's it, she's got a robot hand again right or like you know it, it's basically like she's turned to the dark side and all of a sudden her entire character is gone um which would have made sense if you'd established that the dark side was real which you could have because there's magic in the story right like it would have been trivially easy to set up a situation where daenerys was like hearing feeling the dragon inside of her right and like oh i really want to be the dragon i really want to yeah what if she what if she had like dreams and visions and prophecies right? <laughs> what if like what if brand sent her you know dragon dreams or something like that yeah. to like just motivate this uh motivate yeah. this thing yeah the the sort of the apotheosis moment it's funny like the the only uh this was well observed i thought by by some you know somebody on the internet uh and and like we're we're in the age of an actual x comments on y comments on this pop culture thing that you think yeah. ought to be beneath them yeah. and after the battle of, battle of winterfell it was like an actual military x comments on the tactics used in the blah 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 in the, the the battle of winterfell and why it's a terrible idea and why um well anyway no need to rehearse all of that and like the a common one recently is is uh an actual you know a, a film historian or an actual uh, d- uh cinematographer comments on the cinematography in game of thrones because we started overthinking it 11 years ago and now the whole internet is overthinking it but <laughs> right, the right, right. um the the idea 
was that like you, the the point that that uh, whoever this writer was made um, he or she made that was actually very well observed was uh, you actually never see her face again after that that first one where she does the the snarling she like looks around and is happy then she's sad and then she gets snarly um, and uh, you know sort of screams and the dragon flies off you never see her face again so you never see her apotheosis is it the moment at the top of the stairs where the dragon wings flap behind her that's terrible that's yeah. you know for a, a, a little girl kind of sold into this arranged marriage right um you, 10 years ago or whatever like that's that's an awful uh thing to have happen you know that's that's not a and and is not really consonant with any of her interiority that we have access to because we know what her chapters are cuz she she's a point of view character in the books and they they so we know a little bit about what's going on uh in in her head like it's it's completely wrong and yeah she sort of gets she gets done the dirtiest i mean john yeah. snow gets done pretty dirty too like a lot of stuff with him is not uh is not really cashed out um th- what does it mean that he came back to life when beric dondarian came back to life he claimed to be transformed and like a little bit less of a person every time um so like is john less of a person like uh, you know coming to terms with that uh even i was actually surprised when when he hopped into bed with daenerys because like does his does his heart still work do, do his feelings still work or is he just a sort of walking you know sort of zombie with a mission um but but uh he, at least like there is some sort of plot reason for his reduction to uh just being a blockhead you know um yeah. the the who else aria aria's super weird you know oh yeah to- tonally like what what happened was her sort of assassin training uh super traumatizing you know like being a, a an indentured servant basically in this death cult like and then kind of escaping it but still like did it did it scar her like the the was she uh you know did she become dexter like was she a, a sociopathic killer like what what's her what's her thing and then she gets all all ooey gooey all of a sudden after the sack of king's landing um because there were some you know there were some kids who died and this is like this is a a, a girl who dressed up in as a in the dead skin of a child right in a child brothel to kill one of her enemies <laughs> this is like you know like an, an this is someone who dressed up as a kitchen maid that she killed in order to bake dozens of human beings into pies after chopping them up into mincemeat <laughs> people that never wronged her personally right yeah like this is yeah this this is but of course it's like well she's a hero in this kind of story none of that matters uh, but but the whole thing about the boat still makes no sense. Yeah, but I, right, exactly. Like that, she's like that. What she's Frodo, and she's going off into the west with with Gandalf and the elves. Like that, it doesn't make any sense I mean, at all. And that would make no... sense if she did it with Sandor. If it was like, I can't live here anymore, and neither can I. We're going to go sail off into the west and probably die. Right, like that would make sense. There's so many ways to make this make sense, but it doesn't make sense the way that it happens. In yeah, Clegane Bowl was actually pretty yeah. cool. It was one it of really the cool was. things of yeah. about the the sack of King's Landing, and like you know, was something that you've been yeah. been waiting for. Uh, That's true. Waiting for for a while. So the the I mean the the. Um, you know, and we've all been wondering what what Sir, what was his name, Robert Strong, uh, looks like. What the Hound, Zombie Hound, looks like. Not Hound, Zombie Mountain looks like under the uh, uh, under the helmet. Turns out he looks like kind of a purple Christopher Lloyd as Uncle Fester in the first in the Adams Family movie. You <laughs> yeah, know, that, he's uh, Kane from WWE, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> right, but but still, you know, it was it was. Um, yeah, a, a nice one for them, and like going yeah. going back, taking him down by going back into the fire for the hound was was a a sort of good moment. Not so the end of Jamie and Cersei so much. No. Um, 
you know, the, the, uh, though, you know, Tyrion finding them in the, in the rubble was a pretty good moment. Um, the, the, uh, good music. I actually liked the music. Super, super heavy handed, super melodramatic, but like a lot of good stuff. I actually can't think of another instance, um, where, the title theme has been used as soundtrack for I'm sure it has it in one of the sort of season ending montages. Yeah. But I can't remember off the top of my head, which one it's just been a long time. Two or three. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Two or they three save it. They episodes. save it and they yeah. deploy it where it makes a difference. Yeah. And sure. it's, I mean, it's definitely in, in, uh, in this one, like the, and, and the, you know, haunting solo voice singing it while, uh, Danny walked in the throne room up to the iron throne. Like this is, you know, this is probably a good way to do it. And then they did it as everyone was disappearing back into the forest, right? Like leading, leading, uh, lending credence to Pete's, you know, grand unified theory of game of thrones. They played it again and it had lyrics and I'm sure there will be some sort of internet release of what the, what the lyrics were, what the, you know, syllables that the singers were singing mm-hmm. were and what they what they meant at at some sort of point yeah. mercifully mercifully this episode did not have a inside the episode with the writers at the end of at the end i don't think those have added much <laughs> they're they're hideous they're terrible. the one thing that they do is they make you watch barry less quickly which is a real <laughs> that's a real problem oh, yeah get to, get to barry um, oh i gotta watch the season finale of barry that's tonight right yeah actually oh by God. the way right, right pete and it's it's very late for you so maybe maybe we'll wrap in just a second but like if you if you want to show about an actual traumatized person who came who came out of the desert a changed man and came came back to the west uh you know john wick (laughs) three it's great it's better than detective pikachu (laughs) it's super great he pets the dog all right pete let's let's give you the parting shot because uh you know um obviously you have a, a lot invested in the stories and i want to honor that Oh, sorry. You wanted me to cash out some final thought? No, or? I mean, do you have a do you have a a, a final thought before the uh, uh, before we bring the curtain down? Before we bring the gate down in the wall and and wander off into the forest to uh, rejoin the first men? I, I mean, I guess the final the final calculus of it, right? Is uh, Game of Thrones is not a story where any of the characters, when they're talking, can really be thought to be correct, <laughs> right? Like the only one who's really right, maybe more than half the time is maybe my, my old man or Maester Eamon, but not even them. Like I would say that, that one of the keys to Game of Thrones is that most of the time the people who are talking are lying or wrong. And I think that looking at everything that's happened it really seems to reinforce that idea, right? Like, uh, and if it seems like somebody says something that's inconsistent or doesn't make sense and you want to believe really strongly, you feel really strongly that what a character was really doing was something else, I think you can know with a fair amount of confidence that the story was made in order to leave space for your opinion too. It's a story with a ton of ambiguity and conflict. It's a story where you can really imprint your own thoughts on it and you're really not doing it any trouble because it's a story about how the subjectivity of individual people can't really be extracted from their situation. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, if the whole thing has just been a runaround, you know, a sort of lawn mowing, right? Because, you know, man is grass and God is the mower of grass and that's all that's been happening and the whole war has been pointless, then the point of it has been the people who have been living their lives and loving and feeling things along the way. And, uh, you know, maybe the real throne was inside us all along. Oh, I was so close to sticking that lamp. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was so I mean, close. The, 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 um, that's, that's actually, I think, you know, consonant with what we actually see on screen in the end. And it's, I'm, I'm curious whether, um, the novels will eventually include this detail because I do believe that we will see the end of the, the seven book series. Mm. Um, I don't know. Do you, where do you stand on that? Or do you not want to make a prediction? <sighs> You know, I yeah, mean, okay. I'll give it, winter I'll, is I'll coming, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, winter's coming for us all. Um, the, uh, uh, the idea that uh, Sam brings in a book called Game of Thrones and plops it. <laughs> no, it's it. called A Song of Ice and oh, Fire. Oh, it's called The Song of Ice and Fire. Um, that, uh, 
you know, is this sort of Tolkien-esque gesture of yeah. the, you know, like Tolkien had the philological impulse. Like every time he, he couldn't write a novel that was just a novel, he wrote a novel and it's like, wait, this novel is a document. How could this document have come into existence yeah. within the <laughs> fictional world that I am, you know, creating in the document, right? There, there was no like, it was all kind of self-contained and self-referential in that, uh, in that particular way, whether it's there and back again or whether it's the Lord of the Rings, right? The, the, um, the the document has to be part of the story inside the document and uh i think the nice bit um uh, the nice bit of this uh document is that it doesn't contain Tyrion at all you know right. and that like uh he's he's the best character in the entire set of novels at least there an argument could be made right and that uh he's um you know he's got a uh he, he's got to cope with the fact that like from a certain point of view from a certain angle looking at the the war of the five kings and looking at the everything that came after um that that uh he actually wasn't that important uh at all and and as one of the people who comes on on one of the farthest journeys you know uh he's got to come to terms with the the idea that as you as the story is told maybe it doesn't comport completely with your own experience but you you still had your own experience and and uh, maybe the throne was inside you all like damn it i was as close as you were and i just <laughs> all right i just couldn't deliver like like the showrunners all right game- so here i'll give you the real explanation the real deep lore explanation for game of thrones and i've said it a couple times on the site before i think i've said it on in the podcast that we did about it back when we all watched the show instead of the last few hangers on. But Matt, you want to know my really deep Game of Thrones theory that was 100% confirmed tonight? What was 100%. That? Game of Thrones is a loose retelling of the uh, 19, uh, 1989 musical Miss Saigon, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> in which is about a bastard boy who is an orphan from war left behind uh, in a foreign land and who has to uh, who is trying to survive under like a false identity uh, reviled by all the people around him and the attempts to bring him back into mainstream society, which which ends with a sort of tragic bemoaning of the plight of all children who are orphaned by war and the like the sacrifice of the mother of the woman in the man's arms as if that's a solution to the problem. Well, uh, uh, they, they are called Puidoy, the, yes. dust, the dust of life. Yes. If you listen to that song and think about Game of Thrones, it all works out. Uh, it all makes sense <laughs> because they are conceived in hell. They're born in strife. They're the living reminder of all the good we failed to do. And we must not forget they are our children, too. They are, children, our, they children. are our children of the forest, too. Exactly. Boom. Nailed it. <laughs> this has been <laughs> Pete and me on uh, Song of Ice and the Fire on uh, Game of Thrones television series. Please let us know in the comments what you think. Click through to the show notes for this episode and we will uh, gladly engage with you there in uh, debate and discussion of uh, both the novels and the uh, uh, and the television shows. Mark spoilers um, courteously, if you please. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Pete, for podcasting with me. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Until then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve. It's actually a combination of a bunch of musicals from the 80s and 90s. You've got the Phantom of the Opera because half of the Hound's face is burned off, you know, and you've you've got uh, you've got cats, of course, because there's cats all over the story. There's Cat Stark. There's Cat of the Canals. There's Sir Pounce and all the cats are kind of living. And there's this there's this sort of nebulous hive mind afterlife that all the cats are trying to get into. And that's like the idea the cosmology of Game of Thrones is just like the musical Cats, right, with, with everybody trying to pass through. And then it's just like Starlight Express because the whole time everybody is wearing roller skates.